Get your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 1. As we continue our study, we'll be focusing this morning on verses 20 through 23, but we'll go ahead and read from verse 1 this morning. Just as we've been singing, How Great Thou Art, there is nothing better or higher or more excellent that God can do than to bring glory to himself through the creation of all that he has made. Creation is about God and his glory. And so it's appropriate for us to sing how great thou art to our great God. Let's begin reading verse 1. This is the word of God. We believe it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand it this morning, to bow our knees and wills to it this morning, to trust you in all that you have said to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was very good, that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the heavens, above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Help us, Lord, to understand it. Help us to submit to it. Lord, speak to us today through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we jump into the first day here, I want to fast forward a number of years to the Gospel of John to help us think about these days and just the overall idea of God creating. In the Gospel of John, Jesus performs his first public miracle. He was at a wedding feast in Cana. And you probably remember the story. When the, when the, 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 the challenging section here, kind of the bum, 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 is this, these terms right here, this, these words. When the wine ran out. You're at a wedding feast. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus does what good moms always do. She goes to her son, right? They have no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the, the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And they said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You're one great guy. <laughs> You're a pretty high-class dude. This is an amazing wedding. This, the first of signs, of his signs. Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. My question for you today, before we jump into the creation, is regarding this miracle. Do you believe this? Yes. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus turned water to wine? Now, I unearthed a rare document that no one has seen up until this point. And it talks about what the, the master of the feast did after this setting. He took some of the wine and went to a local lab to have it tested. And the scientist ran his test and found out that actually that wine had to be at least 21 days old. Because everyone knows to ferment wine takes time. And so, of course, the master of the feast started spreading rumors that Jesus, when we see the, the natural explanation, we all know, everyone knows that wine takes time. It couldn't have been done in a moment. It couldn't have been created in an instant. Wine takes time. And the evidence is right there. Wine takes time. Do you still believe this? Do you believe that Jesus did a miracle 
that at his spoken word, he created wine. And not just any old wine, but really good wine. It was a good year. B.C. 540. <laughs> Maybe it was 30 years. I don't, I don't know. We don't know how old the wine tasted. We just know it was good wine. And wine takes time. I tell you this illustration for us to then go back in time now to creation. Because as we reflect upon what God does by speaking the universe into existence, I have to, in my own simple child life faith, take God at his word and believe that when he says he spoke it, he did it just as he said he did. I've heard people say, and I'll say it myself, I don't have enough faith to believe that everything came accidentally. It's just absurd. So let's look now at our passage today, together. God spoke four points today, four verbs. God spoke, God created, God saw, God blessed. God spoke, God created, God saw, God blessed. Let's listen to the word of God again. Verse 20, point number one, God spoke. And God said, notice what it says, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So we come here to the fifth day of creation and it marks a pivotal moment in the biblical narrative of creation. It's a verse that's really full of profound theological significance. As we reflect on the word, God said, <clears throat> God said. The verse reads, he, he said this, he spoke this. He says what? Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the heavens, across the expanse of the heavens. In this brief but powerful statement, we witness the divine command that brings forth this rich tapestry of life in the aquatic and aerial realms. Simply, simply stated, God created fish and birds. He speaks, and it is so. But I want to hone in on that, on, the, on that phrase for a moment. And God said. The phrase, and God said, is a recurring theme throughout the creation account in Genesis 1. It punctuates each day of creation, highlighting the authority and creative power of God. This divine utterance serves as a theological cornerstone emphasizing God's sovereignty and the foundational nature of his word. God speaks and it is so. God is sovereign. He is a king. And when a king speaks, it must be. The word of God is the ultimate authority in the universe. And it's by his word that all things come into existence. Think about that for a minute. Pause and, and, and think with me. The word of God is the ultimate authority in the universe. The president of the United States is not the ultimate authority in the universe. The king of England is not the ultimate authority in the universe. Some parliament... Some, some body that rules over some area, some place in Africa, some, some king, some prince, your mom or your dad, your uncle or your aunt, 
the principal of my school, the police that are over Torrance, our mayor. These are all authorities, but there is an authority that is higher than all of these authorities. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Ponder that for a moment. King of kings. There are kings on the universe, on, on the universe, on the earth. And he is their king. There are lords. He is their lord. The word of God is the ultimate authority in the universe. In the context of Genesis 1.20, this declaration shows God's deliberate and purposeful creation. His spoken word brings about life where there was previously none. He, he speaks, and it is. I, I wish I could speak, and it was. We're getting ready to go on a vacation. This isn't some specific thing I'm thinking about, but, but many times we're getting ready. Linda's got a pack list. We do all these things to get ready, right? And, and it's time to go. We're, we say we're going we're gonna to leave at 1020, right? And at 1020, we're like, wait, oh, 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 do this. You know, there's been times we've gone to the car, we go back out, go to the car, go back out, start to pull out of the driveway and go, did you turn the iron off? Oh, man, I think I turned the, I'm sure I turned the iron off. If you didn't ask me if I turned the iron off, I would know that I'd turn the iron off. But now since you asked me if I turned the iron off, I probably didn't turn the iron off. Let's stop and go back and we'll turn the, I'll turn the iron off. One thing after another, right? We are not the ultimate authority in the universe. God is the ultimate authority. When he speaks, it is so. And God said, though, extends beyond the creation account. Throughout the Bible, we find that God's word is a powerful agent of transformation and revelation. Isaiah 55, 11, it says this, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. God speaking. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Every word that comes out of the mouth of God achieves exactly what he intends it to achieve. When God speaks, it is so. When God speaks, it is so. God's word is not merely a proclamation, but an efficacious instrument that brings about his divine purposes. God speaks, and it is so. Furthermore, in the New Testament, we see the profound connection between the Word and the person of Jesus Christ. There is God's spoken Word. There is God's revealed Word. There is the, the, the person of Jesus Christ who is the Word. There's also the written Word. When we think about the person of Jesus Christ, we think of John 1.1, 1, 1, which we've probably read, I think, almost every sermon. We'll probably keep reading it. <laughs> in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And we know that, that that word became incarnate, and that word was Jesus Christ, the living word. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He came for a specific purpose, to die for sinful men. His word gives life. His word gives life, and his word, Jesus Christ, gives life. Notice that when God speaks, 
Also, he uses words. When we look into this, the implications of this, and God said, it becomes evident that God communicates in a manner that transcends mere abstract ideas, promptings, feelings, or emotions. No, he communicates through spoken words and written words that convey clear and comprehensible directives. God speaks. He's not just prompting. He's not just giving you an emotion or a feeling or a sense. I'm just trying to kind of, kind of ooh and ah or, or, or say some mantra or, or meditate until God moves in me somehow. God speaks. And when he speaks, he uses words. Words that convey meaning, purpose, direction, command. All through Genesis 1, his spoken word brings about specific results. When he says, let there be light, there was light. This showcases the precise and authoritative nature of his speech. When God speaks, it's not a vague suggestion. God's suggestions. Let me, I've, got a, I've got a few ideas. Let's have a conversation. This is a big thing. That, I don't know if they're still doing this, but in my field of work for quite a while, it became popular to talk about let's have a conversation. It drove me crazy. Your principal, let's have a conversation about this, Right? Well, if I can have a conversation, it's kind of like I'm going to give my opinion, you give your opinion, let's all collaborate, we're going to kind of come to the thing and we're going to draw a poster and we're all going to you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya and then go out and be, yeah, teamwork and do a trust fall and you know, <laughs> all this, all this you know, business management stuff that we do. When God speaks, it's not a, it's not a vague suggestion. It's not a so, subtle impression. It is a command that produces immediate and observable effects. When you consider our scripture today, listen to God's verbal instructions. He says, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. These are not vague notions, but clear and concise directions. These words are understood not just by us as readers, but by the very creation itself. In obedience to a spoken word, creatures teem in the waters and birds fill the sky. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? I don't know what it looked like. But as he speaks, in the same way that he says, let there be light, there is light. As he forms and fills and, and, and creates and goes through those, those, processing, that, those processes, he speaks and then there's birds and there are fish and, and, and sea creatures teeming through the, through the oceans. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the prophets receiving uh, God's messages through audible, comprehensible words. God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, conveying his name. He spoke audibly from Mount Sinai, giving us the Ten Commandments. He spoke through the prophets, and over and over again, hundreds, hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament, there are these words, Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. And then, of course, we fast forward to the New Testament, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. As the Hebrew writer looks back at the Old Testament, thinks back about the written word, he says, long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, how? By his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he, 
created the world. He, Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In the ministry of Jesus, Jesus often began his teaching with phrases like this. Truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus also, being the incarnate word, comes and not, he's not giving subtle impressions, vague notions, oohs and ahs, let me just, you know, let me, let me just impart some. No, he speaks to his people. And he says, listen, what I'm saying is truth, real truth. Listen to me. The importance of God's word being understood and obeyed is underscored in passages like Matthew 4, 4, where Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3. And he says this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This highlights the life-giving and transformative power of God's spoken word, which demands not just comprehension, but also obedience. God's word does not just demand comprehension, understanding, but obedience. You see, if you say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, actually, at that point, you've just reached what James would refer to as demonic faith. The demons believe and shudder. Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God. There's comprehension. There's understanding. But what the demons lack is obedience. We have many friends who we can talk to and say, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus is who he says he, who he, says he is. But that doesn't bring about salvation. We have to move beyond comprehension to obedience. John 3.16, listen to what the Word of God says. From the Word of God to the world that he made. We all know this passage. But listen again as, as we listen to the Word, the incarnate Word, speaking his words to the world. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Friend, if you're here today, as we're preaching through the creation of the world, as we talk about the glory and the majesty of God, we see what's revealed in his love and his, his wonder, his beauty, his most marvelous act of love was to send his beloved son for us, sinners, those of us who have broke his commandments. He sent him into the world that we may be saved through him. That we may have, just as Warren prayed this morning, have our sins, past, present, and future, all forgiven. 
Do you believe him? Do you believe him? Do you believe those words? So that's number one. Number one, God said. God said. God spoke and it was so. Number two, God created. Look at verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves that which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. So in Genesis 1.21, we, we see this continuation of God's creative work as he forms sea creatures and, and living creatures that inhabit the waters, each according to its kind. And simultaneously, he brings forth every winged bird, all according to their kinds. So this verse underscores what? God's sovereign creativity, but also reveals his meticulous attention to detail and his unwavering commitment to creation. First, we see and recognize that God's creative acts are purposeful and deliberate. Purposeful and deliberate. He creates all these creatures according to their kind. And when it says they're created according to their kind, it refutes any notion of macroevolution or a haphazard, chaotic process. Each thing is created according to its kind. And they're commanded later to be fruitful and multiply. And how are they going to multiply? They multiply according to their kind. Let me say it this way. I think C.S. Lewis said it this way in one of his books. A fish begets a fish. A bird begets a bird. A man begets a man. Or humans beget humans. When my wife was giving birth to our son Hayden, the doctor did not walk out and say, oh my goodness, you've got a you know, five-pound baby boy lemur. <laughs> he wasn't shocked or surprised. He's not there going, I wonder what it's going to be. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> what could it be? I have no idea. No. Humans produce according to their kind. Birds produce according to their kind. Fish produce according to their kind. There is no uh, transitionary fossils. There are no, no areas where, where God has uh, things ooze from one, one thing to another. You, and I, you know what I'm talking about. The meticulous, meticulous craftsmanship of God informing the great sea creatures and the birds and the air underscores his, his sovereignty and his creative power. They testify to his wisdom and design, which has remained unchanged throughout the ages. I mean, I remember even as a, as, a, as a young boy, you know, and things, uh, I mean, in the evolutionary, the way they talk about these things, it's progressed even beyond there. But I can remember as probably a first grader, when you'd hear these things in, in school, and I can remember thinking to myself as a little kid, like, you go out, go out and hear your teacher read about the theory of evolution, and you'd have the little pictures, you know, of the man and the monkeys and all this stuff. And I can remember as a first grader talking to my friends going, where's the... Shouldn't there be like someone on the playground with us who's like part monkey? <laughs> you know, and there's that, that guy, you know, and we thought one of that guys, he probably is. No, but, but you're looking, you're thinking, isn't there, where, where's, the, where's the person who's kind of evolving along the process? Even as a child, even as a child, I knew the foolishness of what the teachers were telling me. No, God says to produce, to multiply according to their kind. Think about this for a minute. In, in, in um, Henry Morris's, uh, there's a series of books by Henry Morris that deal with creation. You can look those up, and it's 
They're really good. Let me share with you a few things from what he says about, about the birds and the fish. First of all, he makes the point uh, this. Birds are designed to fly. Birds are designed to fly. I walked out onto my porch a few, I don't know, just a few years ago. We, we came out one day, and, and all of a sudden, right in my face, there's this little bird. I mean, it's like right in, up, up, you know, and I'm, what in the world? And ends up, we find out it's a hummingbird. And we had a little, a little tree, a little ornamental tree on our front porch. And guess what? You know, why is this hummingbird always right in my face when I step out of the porch? Because she had made a tiny nest. You know, the nest is about that big. And you look inside, and there's little tiny eggs that are little, little, you know, little tiny blue eggs in there. And this mother hummingbird is like, stay away from my nest, right? And so it gave us the opportunity to, to observe this tiny bird, and if you've looked at hummingbirds, how they can fly and how they can turn and how they can hover and how they, and their wings are going, I can't remember how fast they go. It's super fast. You can't see it, right? And when they get up close, there is a, right? And you think this tiny thing, this tiny thing with this sharp beak, it's very intimidating, right? It comes right up to your eyeball. And you're just thinking, look at the wonder of, of, of the, the, the smallness, the tininess, and then to see her sitting on her little tiny nest there. Amazing. Henry Morris says this. He says, all of us have marveled at the birds of our, of our world. Some are exquisite and brilliant color. Some sing so wonderfully that our hearts weep with joy. Others swarm and pirouette in the air like the most graceful of acrobats and ballet dancers. Every child has watched and wished for the freedom of a bird's flight. Soaring higher and yawn with apparent ease and little thought for the specks of life below. The lure of flight has driven many to experiment from the pathetic Icarus of Greek mythology to the success of the Wright brothers. Flight has no doubt enamored and mystified humanity since day six. Yet all of our engineering skills, fighter jets, rockets, and commercial aircraft fail miserably to mimic the efficient and effective design of the tiniest bird. Yes, we fly but clumsily so, clumsily so, right? I mean, I know, uh, you know, I'm talking to some engineers in here, and we can, we can design some amazing things, some amazing aircraft, but can anything compete with the beauty, the grandeur, the precision of the hummingbird <laughs> to stop and turn and move and flit and fly? And it's amazing. He says this, feathers are not simply parts of flying creatures, they vary in type and use from the soft inner down to the varied wing, tail, and head crest. Feathers have shafts and veins and barrels. They have colored pigments as well as various types of built-in prism designs that refract light. The colors vary all over the spectrum from plain black and white to the spectacular radiance that brings an involuntary gasp of breath as its stunning beauty. He goes on and describes even the feathers and how they're designed and and there's, there's no way, there's no evidence, even in the fossil record, of feathers evolving from one thing to another. They were designed for a specific idea, for a specific purpose. Feathers came into existence at the same time birds did. God created birds to fly. When did feathers come to be? On day five. When did feathers come to be? On day five. Day five. I can say that with complete 
confidence and honesty. How do I know that? Because God's word has said so. And I believe it. Because God's word has said so. And I believe it. But Kevin, that that wine, we tested it. That wine is actually 40 years old. God has said so. And I believe it. When we look at the fish, look at the fish. They're designed as well to be in the sea and to do what is completely marvelous. They're, They're designed to swim they're designed to swim. I was boogie boarding many years ago with some, with some people, uh, some friends of mine, some, some gentlemen, and we were south of the pier in Huntington Beach. It was actually, I do remember, it was actually the, the day after Christmas. Uh, I don't remember what year it was, but it was the day after Christmas. We had our wetsuits on. It was very cold, of course, and we go out there to boogie board. I've got on my big, you know, my extra thick wetsuit. I've got on my flappy, you know, fins. I've got my flotation device, my boogie board. And we go out there, and as we're out there, one of my friends says, oh, look, look, there's a big school, pod, pod of dolphins. Which is it, Chris? Pod, a a pod of dolphins, probably 20 or 30 dolphins that are out there, you know, doing their thing. And our friend says, let's go out there. So, okay, let's go. So here we go. We're, you know, you know, we're flapping, and they're out there swimming. As we get about halfway to them, they see us, I guess, and they turn, and they come to us. And there's four guys sitting out there floating on our rubbery flotation devices with our dolphin-like thick skin and our goofy, clumsy flippers. And these dolphins come to us and surround us and start going in and out and around. And just, I mean, I tried, just as you would try to reach out and touch one, they'd come up and just, just within, you know, an inch of you touching them, under they'd go. Just under the boogie board, up on the other side, blow hole, you know, all around everything. It was crazy. One of my friends finally got tired of it. He's like, I'm going to go out and keep surfing. So he starts going out. He goes out, and he's, as he gets ready to crest a wave, these three dolphins come, and they're in the wave. And I can see them through the sun, right, highlighted in the wave, and they're just going fast. And, we, and we're thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm, there's my friend Chris. There's three dolphins. They're going to, like, they're going to, you know, they're like ram speed, <laughs> right? Here they go. And so we're like, Chris, Chris, like I'm thinking they're, and just as they get to him, boom, they just go right under him and keep going. And uh, we're like, you almost got rammed by some dolphins. He's like, what dolphins? You know, I was, I was dumbfounded. I was astonished. I was full of awe and wonder. And you can't help but be there and say, praise God for the fifth day. Praise God for the fifth day and his amazing design. As I reflected, as we walked home that day or, or got, walked to the, on the beach back to our cars, we're laughing about ourselves. Look at us. Though they are, those dolphins are designed to be in the water. I am not designed to be in the water. We can reflect on their gills. We can reflect on their skin. We can reflect on all these things. And, of course, uh, um, don't come up and tell me later that a dolphin is not a fish. Okay, yes. So, so that's even amazing as well. Sea creatures. Yes, right? Mammals designed to be <laughs> in the water. Uh, but moving on. Moving on, moving on. I've got to find my notes now. Uh, number three, number three. God saw. God saw. 
Genesis 1.21 ends with its familiar refrain, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. It, it, it gives us a, vi- a vital theological truth that runs throughout this creation account, and indeed uh, throughout all of Scripture. In these simple yet profound words, we find a reflection of God's divine character and his perfect work. What God does, what God creates, is good. This statement underscores the absolute goodness of everything that he brought into existence. In fact, this phrase appears repeatedly throughout the creation narrative. It emphasizes each step of God's work. It met his standard of perfection. It's good. As image bearers of God, sometimes we find ourselves, maybe you might find yourself out in the garage working on a wood project. Or as a, uh, as, as a painter, you may be painting something, or you may be designing something. You may even be making a bed. And, 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 and you, you get there, and you, you do it, and you accomplishment, and you step back, and there's great satisfaction saying, that's pretty good, right? That, that's good. As a wife, you call your husband and to say, look at what I've done here. And your husband says, that's all right. As, as a beautiful meal that you've made, he says, that's awesome. That tastes great. It's really good. As image bearers, we, we, we reflect God's goodness in the things that we uh, make and form and feel like he does, feel like he does. God looks at his work and he says, it is good. Verse 31, later, we'll get here. At the end of the whole creation account, God saw everything that he had made and behold, Here he says, it was very good. The emphasis here is not just on his goodness, but its excellence. And it reaffirms God's creation. It was flawless, reflecting his own character of holiness and perfection. The goodness of God's creation extends beyond Genesis. Psalm 145.9 says this, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all he has made. Romans 8.28 speaks to this idea of God's goodness as well. Even when we're sinners, even in the fallen world, God's goodness is shown to us as believers. Where it says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have called according to his purpose. God begins creation with, it is good. And then as he recreates and breathes life into us who were dead, he then continues to work his goodness throughout our lives over time. And many of us can look and see, I'm in a tough time. I'm in a bad spot. There are some horrible things I'm going through, suffering or persecution or challenges. And we can say, but we know that God is working these things for my good because he is a good God and he loves those who love him. Number four, number four, God blessed, God blessed. Verse 22 says, and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Genesis 1:22 marks this accounting creation where he blesses the creatures of the sea and the birds of the air with his divine command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. This underscores God's divine authority and providential care over his creatures. It's a reminder, of, again, of his sovereign rule and his intimate involvement in sustaining and multiplying life on earth. 
God, as he creates, obviously we are created in his image, but all of his creation reflects his glory. And what is it that God wants when he says to, to, to multiply and fill the earth? God wants his glory to cover all of the earth so that every place that man looks as we walk upon the face of the earth, when we look, we see there, oh my goodness, look at that part of creation. Look at that part of creation. Look at that. Look at this fish. Look at this trout. Look at the colors along the side of it. Look at the, the way the gills or the, uh, the, the, the scales reflect in such beauty. Look at those colors. How could that bird be that color? How could it have such bright orange on its beak? How could it have purple? <laughs> I just, you know, look at these amazing things. God desires that as we look at creation, that all of the earth is filled with his glory. All of the earth is filled with his glory. And therefore, man is without excuse. Your friend says, I don't believe in God. You say, have you ever seen a hummingbird? Have you ever looked at a hummingbird? Have you ever considered a hummingbird? With the eyes of faith, we look at the hummingbird and say, God is so great. God is amazing. Look at it. Consider it. Wow. Psalm 104, 24 to 28 says this. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable. I mean, they say that we've only dis discovered or, or explored how much of the oceans, like, I don't know, 5%, I think we're at the aquarium recently. It, it's, it's not much. The psalmist has it right, doesn't he? As he looks, oh Lord, how manifold are your works. How incredible are your works. In wisdom, you've made them. We look at the design that's there, and you have to say, wisdom designed this. It wasn't, it wasn't time plus chance. Time plus chance doesn't get you a hummingbird. I'm sorry. Time plus chance gets a mess. Tell your 12-year-old son, that room's a mess. Go in there and clean it. And he should say, Mother, time plus chance will make my room perfect in design and order. Watch and see. He closes and closes the door. 18 years later, you go back in to look. What are you going to see? A mess. Time plus chance gets you nothing. I've got to stop. I'm seeing the shirt says, you know, let's, let's all fold ourselves and get into the closet. And No, I'm sorry. It's absurd. And here, let me borrow from Greg Kokel. Yes, I am ridiculing. Yes, I am ridiculing this thought. Why? Because that's what you do to that which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think that time plus chance is going to give us a hummingbird. Be fruitful and multiply, the Lord says, and fill the earth. Why? It's not a mere existence for the propagation of life. 
And the display, it reminds us of, of, of God's purpose for his creation. God's purpose for his creation, it's not mere existence, but the propagation of life and the display of his divine wisdom and design. Let me think for a minute about, with you about this. We've been focusing over the last few weeks about the creation of the universe and the creation of this earth. God has done an incredible work to glorify himself through that creation so that man is without excuse. So we can look at the creation around us and, and glorify God. But as we see his, his glory... As we see the Grand Canyon, as we look at the stars, as we look at the wonder of the hummingbird or the dolphin, we can reflect on our own selves and say, yes, I am created in the image of God, but there's something wrong with me. I know I'm created in God's image, and so is my neighbor, and so is my, my sister, and my brother, and my friend. I've been created in the image of God, but something's not right with me. I don't say the things I should say. I don't do the things I should do. I, I think thoughts that I shouldn't think. I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I'm not a man of righteousness. Why? Because we're sinners. We'll get to the fall in a few weeks. But just as I read earlier from the word, speaking the word to the world, Jesus came for us. He came to fix that which is broken, that which is twisted, that which is called sin. And by his death on the cross made a way for us to be reconciled with a holy God. And for those of us who have put our hope and trust in, in him, in the beloved son, we will see and experience not just this earth, but a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Revelation speaks of this. The Apostle John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. As we continue to live and breathe and walk upon this earth and see God's amazing glory in his creation, specifically on the fifth day, the sea creatures and the birds, give glory to God and listen to the living word and put your hope and trust in him so that you can enjoy not just this earth 
but you can enjoy for all eternity the new heavens and the new earth and be with God for forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. You are a great God. Thank you for this time to, to spend in the book of beginnings to, to reflect on your fifth day of creation. Lord, may we have our faith increased in you and believe what you say. May we take you at your word. Lord, we know that you, you love us because your son has come, walked the face of the earth, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, even though he was without sin, perfect in every way, raised again for our justification, ascended to be with you, ruling and reigning on high, and coming to receive us in the future. We can pray with full assurance and confidence, with great hope, Lord, come quickly. Lord, help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.